the morning in which we've been blessed to gather on an occasion like this one is truly a great one. And God has been so beneficent, so good, so pleasant in favor to each of us to allow us the blessing of this day. It is the first day of the week on which we have the privilege of assembling around the table as we're commanded in Acts 20 verse 7 to give as we've been prospered in the language of 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 and to in fact engage in the other matters that can in fact lead us along this week in a way that will be much better for us than it otherwise might have been. Indeed, as Brother Ted mentioned earlier, we are certainly thankful for the presence of each and every one, our membership and visitors alike, and it's our trust and hope that by the goodness of God, we each will be greatly benefited by having been able to be here this morning. You might notice on the wall again to my left, as we often do, I use a PowerPoint to make, in fact, the thoughts of the lesson available as well to you this morning. And it is based upon that text that Brother Eddie read earlier, taken from the 16th chapter of Proverbs. Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before fall. As we give some thought to how to, in fact, begin that lesson, as we usually do, some introductory thoughts might place us in a position to see the direction to which we'll turn our attention as we give thought to the lesson based upon pride. The joy that fills our heart in worship, Psalm 29, 2, will in fact lead us to joyfully, beautifully, and directly give thought to the Word of God, even in its teaching about this subject known as pride. Isn't it amazing to look upon the human family and to see in humanity the goodness that can be expressed, whether it be love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion, and also to be somewhat astounded by the meanness and the ugliness and the sin that can so often prevail in the lives of those whom you and I may know and see, whether that be in the form of the lack of forgiveness, the hatred and the wrath, and the unmerited degree of disfavor that can so readily be shown. All the while, it is to be noted that God's definitions of all of these things is what's most important. What it is that God lifts high should be our desire to incorporate into our lives and what it is those things He condemns. It should be our utmost haste to remove to the extent we can those things that might cloud our way and our judgment. It is true though, isn't it, that sometimes due to the workings of Satan, even that which otherwise might be a characteristic not inherently bad, Satan can cause us to use it in a way, to implement it in a way that it can turn out to be detrimental, hurtful or harmful to either us or someone else. It is with that in mind, I would invite you to think today with me about pride. P-R-I-D-E, pride. As you can well imagine, the Bible has much to say about it. We will attempt to look at a number of those passages that will be very directing in their wording so that we can appreciate some of the features about this matter of pride. Entirely, it is fair to say that the words proud and pride can be used in a variety of ways, some of which, quite frankly, in our modern usage can in fact relate to a good thing. Who among us has not either thought about or made the rather grand statement with respect to our sons or children or daughters Son or daughter, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the decision you made to stand in the midst of this otherwise difficult circumstance and cling to what you knew was right. 
Maybe we can also express as parents a degree of pride in regard to the kind of person that our children have grown up to be. I think all of us as parents enjoy sentiments, feelings, and the ability to say those kinds of things to our children. And you might notice there we seem to be using the words proud and pride in a positive way. Maybe we can be proud of our husband or wife. Also knowing perhaps some great obstacle or difficulty that he or she has overcome and we're proud of him or her for the fortitude, the strength and encouragement with which they faced that problem. But isn't it also true we can equally well seemingly use those words in a negative way. Maybe you know a co-worker or some other person, maybe a person at school or a person on the job who seem to lift themselves up in haughtiness and arrogance and lord themselves over everyone else, and they make it miserable for everyone who seems to have to deal with them. You see, there one is using this word pride or proud in a way that's a bad thing. It'll be our interest today to ask, how does God use the word in His holy book? How does He speak about pride and proudfulness? Let's begin by noting the following. The word pride occurs 49 times in the King James Version of the Bible. And of those 49 times, three of them are found in the New Testament. And as you look through or consider the various passages in which those occur, here are the translations, the ultimate meanings of those words in either Greek or Hebrew that are in fact presented. The Old Testament word most often translated pride is that word that most basically means presumptuousness, insolence, or in fact pride. And you can immediately tell based on those words, that word insolence having in it the notion of a characteristic of discussion in either word or action that really is hurtful or harmful to another because of the way one has, is viewing himself. To condescendingly look on another and disparage his person. What's more is you give thought to all those, again, presumptuousness is a part of it. To presume something about self, to perhaps condescendingly presume something about others as if I'm better than you. As you give interest to the way in which that's presented, look at the New Testament usage of the word. You'll notice that the New Testament word again, characterized by presumption in word or action, as it relates to arrogance or pretension. Immediately one gains the impression and rather direct feeling then that these words, at least to this point, are strongly weighted toward the negative side of this usage and not the positive. Consider the word proud. It occurs almost an equal number of times, 48 to be exact, in the Old and New Testaments alike. And of the six times that occur in the New Testament, you'll note that all of them, old or new, the word relates to haughtiness and arrogance. At this point, we now are in a position of appreciating some of the lessons that might be extracted and drawn from these. But may we be quick to make this statement. As we shall look briefly at a number of the passages to be found, pride, proudness, if you please, is presented in the Word of God as exceedingly destructive. It is presented as an activity that will not only damage and harm potentially one's relationship to God, but one's relationship to others. And as it does so, this matter of pride is an internal thing in which that matter of destruction that comes from it is expressed 
perhaps in language, perhaps in one's own position of oneself. In fact, notice what God has to say about His viewpoint toward it. Maybe this would be the most basic and ultimate question, wouldn't it? In Proverbs 6.17, among the seven things there listed that God hates, one of them is a proud look. God hates it. As you give thought to the other things in that listing, how easy is it to then appreciate that if God hates this matter, then it should be something very far removed from you and me if we would be pleasing to Him. And God hates a proud look. You'll also notice in Proverbs 21.4 that there on that occasion several things are listed as being sinful and one of them is a proud heart. A heart that thus acts and goes by way of the viewpoint of pride here the sacred text defines as a sinful one. That immediately means it's a transgression of God's will and law, 1 John 3, 4. And in that way, it is a position of seeing how far indeed one might need to go in order to be a person like this, that God hates that kind of a heart. I would invite you to notice, though, that many other things can be said about this matter of pride. Not the least of which is this rather strong language found in Proverbs 16, 5. Every one that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That is a very expansive statement, isn't it? That individual, be it man or woman, who goes about with arrogance and haughtiness and who does so with presumptuous lifting of oneself above the arena in which God would command and desire that person to be, that individual is acting in a way that's abominable to God. That degree, however, is perhaps even heightened by this. In Proverbs 8.13, there are four more things that God hates. We noticed a moment ago in Proverbs 6, there were seven things there stated that God hates. This verse adds four more. As you look at the listing of four, one of them is a forward mouth, but one of them, you see, is a proud heart. Pride in this matter of proudness is something that seems very common then in the Old Testament. Might I invite us at least briefly to remember the gentleman who wrote this book of Proverbs. He was Solomon. In wisdom, of course, he had arrived at the position of being mighty and great. He was king and all looked to him and respected him and honored him in his position as ruler over so many people. But even he, as we can tell from a book like this one, was exceedingly cautious of ever being mindful of the humility that must ever be in his way. Because in pride, one is wrong. One is sinful. One acts and behaves in a way that is not right. But might we also notice the following thought. Some of the things that pride brings, what does it cause? What are the byproducts of it, if you will? We might well begin in Proverbs 11, verse 2, in which it directly says that shame comes from pride. When you and I choose to act in a circumstance prompted by pride, that which is certain to come out of it is shame for us or for the person involved or for both. Shame. None of us, of course, desire the matter of shame, and yet it is a byproduct of pride. What's more, you'll notice in Proverbs 13, verse 10, contention, which means strife, 
comes also from pride. How many a circumstance, how many a group of individuals who though once enjoyed fellowship and communion one with another because of the pride of one or more was ultimately led to dissolve that particular association because they weren't able to get along anymore. Pride led to a dissolution. It led to contention and it led to strife and it led to a removal of the blessings and joys that one once experienced. To say all that is to say God has much to say about the behavior and the attitude of pride, doesn't He? I would ask in light of all of that, that we gain a more thorough appreciation of what God contrasts pride to. I would submit that that's one of the clearest and cleanest ways that we might appreciate what does God mean by pride. He's mentioned a proud look. He's mentioned a proud heart. He's mentioned other things that relate to it. But if we can see Him describe its opposite, I think we'd have a much clearer feeling as to what He means by pride. Might I invite you to read with me in Proverbs 16, 19, the very next verse after the one Brother Eddie read for us a moment ago. In Proverbs 16, 19, the sacred writer has this to say. I'll again begin in verse 18 so that we see the contrast so well. Pride goeth before destruction, and in haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Though much gain might be accomplished physically, when one lifts oneself up in pride, the inspired writer said, Better it is to be with the lowly, to be with those who are of a contrite spirit, to be with those who do not behave in arrogance and pride. Better it is to be of that number than to in fact perhaps appreciate far more physical gain with those who are the proud. Doesn't that highlight the distinction? Verse 19 between the proud and the lowly. We, in essence, are speaking of a subject relating to humility, aren't we? A lowliness of spirit, a lowliness of mind. Another contrast also that's drawn is this one in Proverbs 29, 23. Near the close of this book, the same inspired writer had this to say, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. We see again humility contrasted to pride. And so it shall be our joy as we conclude and proceed onward from here in the lesson to describe then some of the direct features from the Word of God that challenge you and me, all of us, to ever be a person not prompted and led and guided in pride, but to be prompted, led, and guided in humility. Lowliness of spirit, ever striving to submit ourselves in all ways that God has commanded to those particular pieces of authority, be it Himself or otherwise. It is with that in mind. Near the bottom, look at some of these examples. Many, many others could be added to that list, but these are perhaps enough to allow us to see how pride can impact the way you and I respond and behave. Being in a position of a teacher... I'm well aware that a student sometimes feels as if he knows as much or more than the teacher and is unbending in his willingness to submit to what the teacher has said. Usually test time will bear the tail when that happens, I might say. 
But the point is, when that student in pride, due to a feeling that he or she has gained from parents or otherwise, they often will act in a rather divisive fashion, unwilling to submit to the material or the lesson taught by the teacher, and they ultimately pay for that. Sometimes they can disrupt the class because of it. Sometimes they're unwilling to sit patiently and quietly while others try to learn. You see, their pride is causing problems for them, problems for the teacher, and problems for others as well. But yet consider another example. That person on the job who thinks that he or she knows everything, regardless what subject is under discussion, you need to channel all the positions and questions that you have through me. I'll be happy to help you. And is this person, who perhaps is not the boss or who is not the manager, operates in that kind of way, they again lead to a position that's very conducive to an unwillingness to act on the part of the company. You get to where you just can't stand being around this person. He or she acts in such a way they lord it over everybody else. Rather than being lowly and humbly striving to assist themselves and others to do the best job they can, they're more interested in how do I look. You need to give me all the direction that you need. Doesn't it remind you of Haman in the book of Esther? This one who wanted everyone to bow before him and the king even gave commandment it should be so, but Mordecai refused. And just because one person would not in fact respect him in that way, Haman was furious. And so much so that he even by beguiling and by deceiving the king brought about an edict to kill all the Jews. It might be in light of all that a third example. Sometimes even in our families, we husbands sometimes can in pride not give due diligence to an idea or concept our wife may have had. Maybe a wife, due to the same matter of pride, does not give the due direction to perhaps something the husband has said or done. Maybe we can do the same with our children. Maybe even in the church, we can allow pride. Those elders didn't follow the suggestion I had. I can't believe they didn't do that. I think I'm going to go start going somewhere else. We each have known of individuals, perhaps not here, but at other places, who in essence have acted like that. They have allowed their pride, their hurt feelings due to that pride, to lead to a dissolution in their fellowship with a given group of people. That's a sadness. It's a tragedy. You see, pride can cause us to do many, many things in this life. And some of them can be very hurtful. Some of them can bring us far removed from where we could otherwise have been. Might I invite you as you give thought to all of that, at the kind of sour disposition that can come when we allow pride to direct our ways. With all that in mind, why not look some more with me at some things the Bible has to say. So far might we in fact point this out. It is true, isn't it, that every description so far that we have seen in the Bible has been an emphasis on those negative attributes of pride. Not a single verse we've looked at has made reference to those positive attributes. And so it is that as God uses that word with that negative influence, He challenges all of us never to allow pride to be the dominant thinking of us and to guide our actions and our words. 
And so it is, as you look with me, at several examples. We're going to begin with the king of Tyre. Found in Ezekiel 28, there is a rather lengthy description. The first seven verses will suffice for us. And I would ask you, as you reflect upon some of what was said in that passage about the kings of Tyre, these individuals, and he wasn't speaking of just one, but all of the kings that that country had tended to lift themselves up with pride and with arrogance and with haughtiness. They were unbending in their willingness to listen to God or anybody else. It's my way or no way, those kings would say. And in that kind of attitude, let us listen to how God reacted to them, what He said about them, and also what befell them. For example, you'll notice that as these kings lifted themselves up, in so doing, God says, they have made themselves either equal or above even me. Isn't that what a person in pride does? Throw this Bible away because I'm going to do what I want to do. And it doesn't matter to me what others might have said, what others might have thought, or in some instances even what the Word of God has declared. There are some who are that prideful. They have that much confidence in themselves. They have that much appreciation of reliance upon what they think. May I submit that in that position they are no better than the kings of Tyre. As such, notice what else God said. He specifically said in verses 6 and 7, Judgment is coming upon the kings of Tyre. I will raise, R-A-Z-E, not R-A-I-S-E, I will R-A-Z-E that land, and I will in fact remove it utterly. That was a direct and straightforward prophecy, and God did what He said He would do. Tyre, in fact, not long thereafter lost the prominence and preeminence that she once had enjoyed. And in fact, the time came, even the armies of the other parts of the world came against her and virtually destroyed Tyre. Might we notice, God was not pleased with this kind of behavior in the kings of Tyre. He wasn't pleased with that prideful and pompous attitude that they had. And in fact, in that line, notice the bottom. It is easy, isn't it, today for some to behave in a parallel fashion as those kings of Tyre. They may not directly come forward and say, well, I'm going to make God of myself and I will lift myself up above Him, but by their thinking and by their behavior and by their actions, they do the very thing. There are many in the world of philosophy or science those who in fact occupy high positions in our land, such as political office, who really do, if you listen to their speeches, sometimes lift themselves up above the God of heaven. When asked questions about other things that the Bible may say, you can tell by the denigration in their voice. You can tell by the disposition of their response. They have no consideration for this book. And they furthermore are interested in removing it from an influential position in the lives of others. Friends, those who are in that position are just like the kings of Tyre. And God will deal with them. He will judge them just as He did those ancient kings. And they too shall be found wanting in the destruction that shall come their way. May we quickly thus notice from this first example that when we have the privilege in this life of occupying a high position 
in which others answer to us in one way or another. May we ever do so with humility, appreciating that it's by the blessing of God we occupy that position and never should we be prompted by pride to behave toward those who answer to us. As you'll notice, there are many ways in life in which that particular matter has become a problem for some. I listed political figures and scientists. Many others could be listed. But as you give thought to that, what about another example also drawn from the Old Testament? It still is true, isn't it, that we must ever be mindful, careful for whosoever thinks that he is in fact one that stands. He in fact will soon be found to fall. In 2 Kings chapter 5, let's now turn the attention to this well-known record. Naaman, as we well remember, was that Syrian military person, but he was a leper. Naaman was a leper, afflicted with this very terrible, very difficult disease. One, of course, at the time that was not only not curable, but it dis distanced one from others. It was a terrible thing to have. However, Naaman came to learn that there was a prophet in Israel who in fact could remedy the situation and cure him. And by the means available, he sought out the help and the aid of that prophet whose name was Elisha. He first came into the land, and when the king of Israel learned of his coming, he was beside himself, I can't cure leprosy. But Elisha learned, of course, of Naaman's coming. He said, send him to me. I'll take care of the situation, or rather God will take care of the situation. Naaman indeed came, and much to his chagrin and much to his disappointment, Elisha did not even come out, but rather he sent a servant and said, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River, and thou shalt be clean. Immediately the text says that Naaman was furious. He found himself in a rage. Why? Had the prophet said something that greatly bothered him? Was it going to hurt him physically to do this? The prophet didn't tell him to sell all he had. The prophet didn't tell him to take his life. The prophet just said, go and wash, dip seven times in the Jordan River. The text goes on to tell us that Naaman thought this, I thought surely he would come to me and wave the arm over me and make a great public spectacle. And pomp and circumstance would accompany the time. But he just told me to go and wash in the river. You see, Naaman was afflicted with some pride, wasn't he? This wasn't what he thought. I'm a dignitary. I am an ambassador for Syria. Should he not at least come out and acknowledge me? Elisha didn't acknowledge who he was. He simply sent a servant to give him the command that God had revealed to him to wash in the Jordan River. In fact, even Naaman said, Are not there other rivers that are cleaner than this one? Far, far in Abana? However, his servants finally did then say, Had he not asked of you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Finally, he went. He was cleansed after dipping the seven times, and he then came back to the man of God with a thankful heart full of gratitude. Isn't it interesting? What once had been a heart filled with pride became a heart filled with thanksgiving. He wasn't leprous anymore. Notice what then came out of that and what lessons might you and I learn. 
I would submit that one of the things directly is this. There are many in our world who have been afflicted in their worship by this same matter of pride. I can't see anything wrong with having a guitar in a worship service. So because I don't see anything wrong with it, that's what I'm going to do. Many other examples might be listed, but we each get the idea when it comes to matters of worship or the organization of the church or what it is the church proceeds to do, what I think is really immaterial. Because you see, if I am following what I think, then in pride I am lifting what I think above what God has said. Notice another example. Weren't the Jews guilty of this? Same idea. You might notice that in Acts 1 verse 6, as well as John 8 33 and Romans 9 4, we each remember these things. The Jews wanted an earthly king. They wanted an empire with all the pomp and circumstance it had enjoyed in the days of David and Solomon. We want that kind of empire again to throw these Romans out of this business so that we can rule ourselves. That's what we want and that's what we're going to have. And so when Jesus came, they sought to make Him a king, John 6, 15. They wanted Him to be the one to lead them out of Roman oppression. They lifted in all points their thinking above that of God. Isn't it true in John eight thirty three? one of those passages we mentioned, they said, we haven't been in bondage to any man. Jesus straightforwardly had just told them, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. But in their retort, they said, we've never been in bondage to anybody. We are God's chosen people and we are the blessing of God to the human family. And in that kind of attitude, that pride guided them to hang Jesus on a cross, unwilling to accept His Messiahship, unwilling to accept His gospel, unwilling to accept the words of eternal life available through Him. Their pride cost them eternal life. You'll also notice in that text in Romans 9, 4, they were God's chosen instruments in the Old Testament and they did have an opportunity to receive the gospel but so many of them rejected it. Might I suggest to you, when it comes to worship, the situations concerning it, Uzziah perhaps easily tells us how wrong that can be. In 2 Chronicles 26, we read about a man, a king in fact, who in his own pride had the audacity to enter into the temple and to offer sacrifices despite the fact that he wasn't a priest. He thought because he was king over God's people that he had that liberty. Might we never forget, God struck him with leprosy before that day was over. There was a man who learned in pride, you do not oppose God. And isn't it awful to see the evil things that can come when we can be prompted today in pride? You see, as we give thought to all of that, might we come as our lesson inches toward its conclusion. Two, two more examples. The first is Ahithophel. When we studied for the Bible Bowl a few years ago in 2 Samuel, we studied about Ahithophel. And what a character he was. He was blessed with great wisdom, it would seem. 
and the counsel and advice that he gave seemed to almost always be followed, for it was perceived to be good and wise advice. But there was an occasion, the text which we're going to look at in chapter 16 and 17 of, of this book of 2 Samuel, we notice that on one occasion he gave some advice to Absalom. On this occasion, Absalom had chased his father off the throne. Believe it or not, Absalom had chased David from the throne and was even interested in taking David's life. He sought Ahithophel's advice and counsel, and as always, he expected his advice to be followed. And so he urged Absalom to proceed in a specific way to not only capture David, but to take his life. However, the king, at least at that point, Absalom, did wonder, what will Hushai say? So he asked for Hushai's counsel. Hushai gave different advice, and the king chose to follow Hushai. Ahithophel couldn't believe that his advice wasn't followed. He couldn't believe that the king did not follow his suggestion. He committed suicide. Here was a person so prompted in disbelief that his way wasn't followed that he took his own life. You and I may not know someone today whose pride has led them to that point, but might we never forget that pride can be very strong. It can put blinders on us to where we can see no way but our way. And might we suggest that we are going to alienate ourselves from so many people if we behave in pride like that. Perhaps our family, perhaps our co-workers, perhaps even our brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe even God. Because when that kind of pride is the directive for our way, we are submissive to not God's way. We are not interested in others' ideas, even though theirs may be better than ours. We can only see what Ahithophel saw. They are not following what I said. I might submit as you come near that latter part, Paul is an example of another attribute of this, but a good one. In 1 Kings 8, Paul, we, or rather 1 Corinthians 8, Paul was a man who, of course, was inspired. But he had such interest and such love for others that he said, If it causes my brother to stumble, I will eat no meat. Paul had the liberty to eat that meat, and he knew it. But out of his concern and love for others, he was unwilling to do it. Paul wasn't prompted, you see, by pride. He was prompted by love, and he was prompted by truth, and he was prompted by a rightful disposition so that he could lead others to where God would want them to be. All of that being said, let's conclude our lesson in the following way. Our study of pride has been an illuminating one to see that God speaks so negatively of it reminding us that when we lift ourselves up in haughtiness and arrogance, it's still the case, pride goeth before destruction and in haughty spirit before fall. We only set ourselves up for a fall when we behave in pride, don't we? That fall may come sooner. It's guaranteed to come later. And might I invite each of us to analyze with care our lives this morning. Are you being prompted by pride? Is it leading you to be unwilling to submit to what this book says? Maybe you've heard the gospel preached on so many times and you've heard the invitation extended. You know the plan of salvation by heart. 
But to this point, in pride, you haven't done anything about it. To this point, you've said, God, I think I'll take, tackle it myself. Thank you, but no thanks. May I submit to you, friend, in that position, pride is deceiving you just the way it deceived those in Obadiah 3. You're being deceived. You need the Savior for eternal life. There may be others who in other ways in life, pride is leading you to not do things or to do things you shouldn't do. Don't let pride separate you from what God would have your life to be. If today we can assist you in your obedience, your initial obedience, that involves faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And as it involves those things, we'd be honored to assist and to help you become a child of God as God adds you to, to the body. If you have become that child of God but you no longer are faithful, maybe you've allowed pride to be a significant stumbling block in your life. If that's the case, don't remain in that condition. Pray with lowliness of spirit and humbleness of mind for God's forgiveness and begin to lead a life not based in pride but based in lowliness and humility. And if we could be of assistance to you today in that attribute of prayer, why not let us do that by making it known while together we stand and while we sing.